Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, May 18th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe uh, during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we had last week off. It was my last finals week as an undergraduate student at Wesleyan University. Uh, so there was no podcast last week. Had a bunch of essays, a bunch of tests to do. Uh, got that all done. So now we are back to the normal podcasting schedule. Uh, and, you know, we're just going to take it day by day and week by week the way that I think everyone is during the during the pandemic. So uh, coming up today on the podcast is uh, something I think uh, hopefully will be interesting for, for everyone. I'm going to do my recap of the last dance and kind of give my initial thoughts or on just the whole thing you know it's a 10 parter it's a lot to digest and a lot to to get through and so i'm going to talk about that at the beginning and then coming up at the end uh, i'm having one of my buddies from all the way back in middle school we've been friends for a long time uh matt star he's a Senior two at Bates College up in Maine. He's an econ and psych major. Uh, he's going to come on just just to talk about what it's like to be a graduating senior during this pandemic. And so, before we get going, I'm going to, as always, start with a recommendation corner. I finished Range by David Epstein. Uh, that's his newest book that's out. It's about how generalists succeed in a highly specialized world. I found it really, really interesting. I recommend it to anyone who's looking for something to read during this time. Because, uh, you know, it was just really interesting as everyone has to specialize kind of at a certain point, but the more knowledge and the more things that you could build up and the more skills, wide-ranging skills you can acquire before specializing, a lot of times helps solve the biggest issues and the biggest uh, problems in the world. So that was kind of just my main takeaway. I don't feel like you have to be rushed into specialization and hyper-focus in just one particular area, but to do broad study, learn about different things, read things, and try new experiences and fields and professions and to try to find your right match quality that, that best utilizes your own skills, what you're passionate about, and kind of what you're best suited for. So I really recommend that. It's tough to top his first book, The Sports Gene, which I highly, highly recommend to anyone. It's one of my favorite books, and especially for anyone who's working in sports and just wants to learn more about sports. I think The Sports Gene was just fascinating, one of the best books I've ever read. And then another, the second recommendation this week is Billions is back on for season five on Showtime. This is one of my favorite shows that's on TV. It's a TV show's where starring Paul Giamatti and, and Damian Lewis, it's Paul Giamatti plays the U.S. attorney in New York, and Damian Lewis plays a hedge fund billionaire. And it's about the story of the U.S. attorney trying to catch the billionaire for insider trading and different financial crimes. It's really good, really fun, uh, very, very well written and acted show. It's created by Brian Koppelman and David Levine, who did Rounders and Ocean's 13 and a bunch of other good stuff. So if you liked any of those films, you'll definitely like 
uh, Billions. It's on Showtime. Season 5 is out now. So you got four seasons to catch up on. And season 5, I think they had seven episodes that got filmed before filming had to stop due to the pandemic. So they're doing like seven seasons, taking a break. And then whenever they can film the rest of the season, they're going to release that at a later date. So uh, if you're looking for a new show to watch, Billions, very fun, very good, very well written. Uh, those are my two recommendations this week. So on to the first main segment uh, here today on the podcast, uh, The Last Dance. So ESPN's 10-part Michael Jordan documentary wrapped up last night, su- sun- Sunday night, the 17th. Overall, I give the, the whole documentary a 9 out of 10. I thought that it was great. I really, really liked it. It was a just a really fun escape from what we're all going through now. And uh, just fun, especially just for someone like me who is 22 years old, is young, and never got to watch Michael Jordan actually play in his prime, even though I knew a lot of the stuff going in, a, a, a different parts of, of the story and a lot of the, the main events. It was just really, really fun to live through almost his career in a five-week span, uh, see the highlights, the lowlights, and, and kind of see how it all evolved and just really just watch a lot of Michael Jordan highlights and footage of him playing that I just never had really the chance to see. You know, I was six months old when he hit that shot over Byron Russell in the game six of the 98 finals. Like It was just really the first time I really got to be with that Bulls team in a way that wasn't just reading books about it and watching YouTube clips or listening to podcasts about, uh, which I found really, really fun and interesting. One thing I really liked about the documentary was the little trick that the director, Jason Heyer, uh, Williams guy, Nescat guy, did while he was filming was that because they had so many interviews and the way they did it was that they did three different interviews with Michael Jordan at different time periods. Uh, one, one thing he did that was really cool was that he used an iPad or an iPhone. He didn't just do this with Jordan, he did it with other guys too, that because they were interviewing so many people, he did this trick where he would hand the, an, a device to someone to play a clip of what someone else said about a moment, about them. And it was really cool and well done. It got a lot of publicity when he did it to show Michael Jordan what Isaiah Thomas said about the Pistons walking off the court in the ni- at the end of the 91 Eastern Conference Finals. And, you know, Jordan rolled his eyes and said that he still doesn't believe him and that he still kind of hates him and that he doesn't like what they did. And it was used again when to show Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen what Michael Jordan said about Dennis Rodman saying he needed a vacation during the 98 season and used again when Gary Payton said he was guarding Jordan well in the 96 finals. And, they had, and Jason Heyer handed Jordan the the iPad and listened to Gary Payton saying that he was taking care of MJ. And Jordan just laughed and said, you know, I, I was thinking about a lot of other things other than, than Gary Payton. I, I had no worries about Gary Payton, which I thought was really, really cool, really fun. And just a filmmaking thing that I've never seen before, and I think it was really great for documentary styles, and as all great art forms get copied and uh, taken, I think that that's something we could see in a lot of documentaries going forward, and, and I really liked it. The biggest takeaway I took from this 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan from from just the whole last dance experience was that 
it just added to the myth and to the legend of Michael Jordan, where the goal was at the end of the 10 episodes, you're leaving your turn off saying 100% without a doubt, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever walk on the planet. And there's, I personally think that there's four players in that conversation. It's obviously Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, and LeBron James. Those are basically the four guys who I think are really in that conversation. And the story reportedly goes that after LeBron won the 2016 championship for the Cavs, the 3-1 comeback, that Michael Jordan greenlit the production. He said, I'm in. Let's do it. And it's kind of just building that myth and the legend of trying to remind people, hey, it's it's been 20-ish, 22 years since he retired from the Bulls. He did come back for the Wizards at the beginning of, of the 2000s. But really, of the myth and the legend of Michael Jordan, it's been over 20 years now. And kind of my generation and a lot of people maybe are forgetting how good he really was and talking about, is LeBron the best ever? And, and this was really used to just say and remind everyone that Jordan is the best and the legend of Jordan. And I thought that was that was really cool. And the, the hard part about trying to digest it all is that in a 10-parter, eight-hour documentary, eight-and-a-half-hour do- documentary, there's just so much in there because it wasn't just a story. You know, the title is The Last Dance, but they call it that last season with the Bulls. But the documentary really covers the whole career he had, especially with the Bulls, even though they go into some stuff from from North Carolina, it was really just all about his whole career. And that's so there's so much information and so much uh, that they covered that it's really hard to handle and digest it all. That was one of the nice parts about it coming out every week, even though they, they did two episodes a week. If this was a Netflix series and it came out and you could binge all 10 episodes in a day or two if you wanted to. I don't know if that would be the best way to view it just because there's so much content in there. It's so jam-packed with interviews and stories that having all week to digest and to and to analyze it all, I thought was a, was a really great way that ESPN and Netflix and everyone involved with the production uh, chose to handle it. And to their credit, I think that one of the main criticisms that the documentary god and ken burns the famous uh documentary filmmaker came out and said this was that uh you know jordan's people jordan himself and his production company reportedly had a lot of say over what was allowed in the content of the documentary uh and they had final say but to that to be fair and to to their credit they addressed a lot of things in the documentary that did not paint the best picture of Michael Jordan and kind of showed him the whole story of him in a lot of ways and a lot of things that uh, were were critical of him. You know, they, they tell the stories of him being a not-so-great teammate, being a jerk, being a bully. Uh, they tell the story about him punching Steve Kerr in the face during a practice. Uh, and they go... And they get into it. They they show the the video clips of him harassing and bullying guys like Scott Burrell with abusive language during practice. And is that something that would fly in today's NBA world? You know, I I have no idea. But they show that then, and and, and you know, it, you're showing Jordan as, hey, you know, even though he's a winner and he's great, he's 
He may not be a great teammate and not a great guy. They also, though probably the most controversial thing about Jordan was, you know, his gambling habits. He, that was really the first time that people were really poking away at the armor and, and the image of Michael Jordan as being perfect in a way. The Everyone wants to be like Mike and he was the star of stars. And then in 1993, you know, they, they lose that first game to the Knicks and he goes down to Atlantic City that gets picked up by the papers and, and by everyone. And, and all of a sudden, his gambling is a huge story. And then, and, and then it comes out, not just about the famous Atlantic City trip, but about some gambling debts he had to some shady figures and his payments that he made and testifying, I think, one of their trials. That's something that isn't in the rosy image that we all think of Michael Jordan as the guy from the Nike commercials and the dunk contest and winning all those championships. But he he sat there. He answered the questions about it. They showed the clips from it. They talked to the reporters about it. They tried to tell that side of the story too. Which, to their credit, they didn't have to do that. And and they did. And I and I thought that was really interesting. Even though I knew some of it going, you know, I I, I had known the story about him punching Steve Kerr, and I know known some of the the gambling stuff. I just thought that it was really interesting to hear it all because when when he came out and said before the production that. Uh, after watching this, some some people are going to think I'm not a great guy. If you didn't know the stories, you you would probably think that, and and your image would change of that if you just saw him as the guy from Space Jam. And I think to his credit, he he tried to open up and and be vulnerable and and to tell his side of the story about his about his flaws. And you know what was really interesting was that he he really did pay the price for greatness in a lot of ways. And and a lot of the most interesting parts of the documentary was that he talked about his flaws in a lot of ways, which was, which was great and really interesting. But also some of the other really interesting parts was that just the flaws and, and, and the cost of being Michael Jordan of just the, just the price of greatness and the price of being Michael Jordan. He he talked about one of the most powerful moments was at the end of episode seven when he tears up about the toll that it took on him to be the bad guy and to try to take his team to to get to the top and play at a championship level and how it was isolating and he would be the bad guy. And he did, you know, take himself away from just being one of the guys and and he was okay with being hated by his teammates and that prob- and, and that had a toll on him and and I, and that was very clear but it was because he had this desire that he had to win that his best quality in a lot of ways was his worst quality which was that he was so competitive that that got him to the top of the basketball world but then a lot of ways it was his worst quality as well because he just he just had to win and he would do whatever it took to win at all costs, whether that was sacrificing personal relationships uh, along the way. And, and even after, after all this time, just the, just the cost of, of all this was that he's so competitive, it, it, it clearly allows him or forces him that, that he just can't let go of things as, as easily as some people could. 
the Isaiah Thomas stuff, he's he's still not over it, and he still hates him just as much as he did back then, and that was really interesting. And Jerry Krause, he was very critical of, not just in the clips from the 90s, but of what he was saying then during the documentary, Gary Payton, and the list goes 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 on and on of just things that Jordan was kind of petty about, and and, and which was just really interesting to see that it kind of just showed him Again, like not always in the best light, which he didn't have to do. That the documentary could have been exactly what Jordan wanted everyone to to show about just his greatness and all the positive things, because they could have done ten hours on how great Michael Jordan was, and we all would have loved it just as much. But the fact that they took the time to to talk about the the negative sides of being Michael Jordan, I thought was really powerful and really interesting. And they also talk about just the negative cost of fame in a lot of ways to be a star athlete in the 1990s, even before the, the Twitter and the social media area. It was clear that the, that the price of fame just had a meaningful toll on him. We saw it just in his body language in the 1993 finals part that they showed in the documentary just of how exhausted he was just from all the at- attention and, and the media responsibilities and the fan responsibilities and the fan attention that... It was incredible just how draining it was on him. And I think that's something we don't think about enough when thinking about celebrities and star athletes, just how draining it is for them to always have to be on. One of the most powerful images of the documentary was him sitting alone in his hotel room in 1998, smoking a cigar and drinking orange juice because he couldn't go anywhere else. Like he can't or he couldn't leave his hotel. And he he couldn't do what his other teammates would do. And and I think that's something that some people say that that's just a the price of fame in America. But and in a lot of ways that that just doesn't feel right that this guy can't go out to dinner uh because he's gonna be mobbed by fans and by media wherever he goes. And you know, the cause is that it's isolating and it's really lonely, it seems like, to be Michael Jordan. And perhaps th- that that's why he. it was clear that he didn't have that many great uh, friendships that, that they showed or that the friendships he had, they were very, very close-knit. It was Ahmad Rashad. It was the security guys who were around him. It was his father, who he was incredibly close to. And it was clear that just after his father was tragically killed, that that just had a huge, huge, huge toll on him and a huge effect on him. And then it turned into that, they, they talked about one of the security guys, Gus, became like another father figure, always around him, always had, had to be near him. And all those things were just really, really powerful. And it showed that Michael Jordan is not just the dunker and the greatest basketball player of his era, of his generation, and maybe even of all time, that he is a full person and he deals with a lot of things just like everyone else deals with. He deals with emotions. He deals with loneliness. He deals with isolation and he handles it differently just like everyone handles things, things differently. But overall, just within, within a documentary trying to cover as much as they did and just the enormous undertaking that a project like this did ESPN, Netflix, Mandalay Bay, like everyone associated with, with the project just did a really great job and a really just tough situation and, and a really tough project to do. And they did a really good job of just putting it all together. 
especially during this pandemic where, where they had to move it up. It wasn't scheduled to come out until the end after the, after the finals in June. And, and they moved it up to give everyone something to watch and something to talk about during, during this pandemic. And, you know, was it 100% perfect? No, absolutely not. It was not a 100% perfect documentary, but also what is a 100% perfect documentary? It was, the, the Last Dance was highly entertaining, informative, very enjoyable, but and it was kind of just the perfect documentary for this moment in time as it transported us from this time with no live sports, with no nothing, dealing with the pandemic every day, to a time that was a lot different and a lot happier than we're living through right now. So overall, major props to ESPN, Netflix, everyone involved. Uh, this was a great documentary i'm really excited to see what they do next and and what kind of long project they they try to do because the two major multi-part documentaries espn has done in their 30 for 30 series was oj made in america which won the oscar for best documentary and is my favorite 30 for 30 and i think the best that, that, that that they've ever done and the last dance so i'm pumped to see uh what they decide to do next so coming up after the break We'll be back with my buddy Matt Starr uh, in an interview, in a conversation we taped last week uh, to talk about just what it's like being college seniors during the pandemic. On the line from an undisclosed location is my buddy since the sixth grade, Matt Starr. He is an economics and psychology major at Bates College. Matt, what's going on? You know, um, just quarantine things. Nothing, like, terribly exciting. Uh, well, it's really exciting to me, but nothing, like, terribly exciting to, like, other people in the world. But, um, you know, just hanging in there, chilling. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of what our days have become. It's, you know, it's a lot of repetition, it's a lot of doing the same thing over and over again with the same people, which is kind of similar to college, but also kind of completely different to the college experience that we were living through. And uh, especially in your case, really embracing uh, in your four years at Bates. So I guess kind of just let's just go back to the beginning. Just when was the first time you even heard of what the coronavirus was? Oh, oh my God. Wow. This that literally seems like years ago. Um, the first time I really heard about the coronavirus, honestly, I, I, so me and a few, one of my best friends from schools from Japan, or his mom is from Japan, and his dad is a professor at Vassar, as you know, who specializes in Japanese education, right? So he lived a few there years there growing up and basically long story short is that we were planning on going to visit his extended family in japan after graduation and basically the first time i even heard about it was in researching that trip and i was kind of just looking around to see where else we may go in east asia um and it turned out that there was something happening in china that was a bit um or more specifically wuhan that was a bit concerning uh, yeah <laughs> yeah, concerning is the word. Um, and obviously, you don't really think too hard about it um, when you come across it as a piece of news because there's so much news that's worrying on the internet. Um, and obviously, 
it's impossible to know that a viral outbreak in all the way across the world is going to end up as a pandemic where you are in a few months time. But exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely interesting. Cause I first heard about the coronavirus by playing, you know, for our college basketball season, we're on campus during winter break and Wesleyan has a, somehow we still get away with having a six week winter break, which is awesome. But as a, as a student athlete, because you really just have more time just hanging out, playing basketball without having the, the Wait, yeah. so, so what, what, what's, your what, what's the quintessential six week break experience like when you look back on those now i guess former huge breaks like what was the most fun type of thing that you guys did because i think you said something about like going into middletown and like getting dominoes or something like that i don't i don't know what, what the hell you guys do yeah so but, yeah, yeah so so the most so, so the best part about that break is that you really just because the only people on campus are the winter athletes uh, people who are, you know, they're working the various sporting games and then also just students there, whether they're doing a winter session class or they're working on their thesis or something like that or doing some, some type of research. So there's base, so there's not that many students on campus. So with no classes, it brings you just all this time to really just do things that you want to do. And especially with team related stuff is that you can hang out a lot more as a team just doing things just like, you know, we get a, but when the dining hall is still closed, we get a stipend from the athletic department. It's like 10 bucks a day, but like you basically get it. Like, so it's like 40 or 50 bucks a week. And we all go, we caravan over to the local price chopper store and we buy groceries together and you, and you end up cooking with the people who live in your respective dorm areas and you watch a lot of movies together and play video games. So it's, you basically just have a chance to actually just sit down and hang out with everyone. Well, then also, Using it to try for some personal development, whether you're working on job job or internship ap- applications, uh, you figure out your classes. You can read a lot. Like my house this year, we we all kind of when we would all really read books that we that we wanted to read, and so that was a fun thing. But yeah, so I first, but like in but in that six weeks, obviously you have a lot of time to really read a lot of stuff and talk about a lot of stuff. So that was when we first heard about the coronavirus. Was just that video that I think got debunked, but that video of that person eating the bat soup in Wuhan, that that was like, so we, so that obviously circulated around the locker room in our team group chat of like, oh my God, you know, more just like you're eating a bat. But then like the more we started learning about the virus and that mainly once people got back from campus, that's really when the, the idea of the coronavirus took off. And we, you know, like a lot of people in the U.S., we didn't take it that seriously, and we thought it was a joke. Where you know, if someone coughed or something, we would like you know bolt away from it and be like, "Oh, that's a you, you know you don't want to catch the catch the coronavirus." <laughs> yeah, no, one of my roommates is from Taiwan, um, and there, I I never made any jokes about the coronavirus with his head because I I just felt like it wasn't that creative or funny. But there, well, also there are other reasons why. Yeah, you shouldn't make jokes about it, right? But way before anyone knew it was serious, I just never thought it was that creative or funny. But there were a lot of people in our friend group that, uh, in our friend group that were just trying to like be funny and say something. I I, I guess just to get attention. I don't know why, and they were making. Well, also like the most interesting thing was we had a coronavirus scare at Wesleyan. The 
basically as soon as our winter break ended, obviously a school like Wesley and a school like Bates, you have a lot of international students, right? And we had an incident where, you know, we're, we're done with practice and we all turn our phones on and, and I see an email from, I think his name is Tom McClarney, who's the Wesleyan doctor at the Wesleyan Health Center, who's like, coronavirus campus update. Apparently someone who was, who was a, a student at Wesleyan who was in China, either over break or they're from China originally, uh, was feeling sick and they had the, the, the quote unquote symptoms and they went and got tested. They were luckily tested negative. But that was like our first of like, this is, you know, the end of January. We were like, oh my God, the virus is here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so actually, I, I, how do you deal with that on a small campus? I feel like word of mouth travels so quickly at a place like Wesley. Oh, Maine, so pure. It was pure. Like it was pure panic. It was pure, just no one handled it well. I mean, Wesley in the last couple of years has had terrible outbreaks of hand, foot, and mouth disease. So so we don't handle things well anyway. Like, you know, the the funniest joke was was when that was going around. You know, one of my old teammates would say, like, we just got to burn it all to the ground and just start anew. (laughs) Like like the school's ruined because of hand, foot, and mouth, you know, as ridiculous as Mm -hmm. as that is. But when that – when they were being tested, it was like, everyone was like, ah, oh, crap. Like we're all like, basically like, we're all probably going to get it. Like we're all doomed, you know, but then, you know, l- luckily we got the report back that they had tested negative for the coronavirus and they were feeling better. And then we kind of just went on our normal college lives. And it wasn't really until middle to end of February that we really started hearing about the virus again. And it was mainly about, spring break and that the school was saying, cause that's when it really started hitting Europe and stuff that was like, Hey, like if you're going to go to Europe, like really think about it, you know? <laughs> no, no, I feel, I feel like once people started getting, getting sent home from like study abroad, cause we all have friends on campus that were juniors and we're like out and about in Italy or wherever else in Europe or actually Italy and Spain. Were yeah. Huge places for study abroad base. And once people started actually getting sent home, then you kind of, had to process and figure out like, wow, this is really like moving into uncharted territory. Um, Did you have any professors who mentioned things about like online classes very early on, or was there any talk about the coronavirus from, from professors in, in classrooms? No. So even more so at other places, everything happened in literally two days at Bates because we, have a weird school calendar so basically we have a break in february and a break in april so as everything was happening we were all just on campus so basically up until the day before um the board of trustees announced that we were getting sent home we thought that we thought the school administration was going to say we've all been self-contained on campus just nobody leave and we could just finish the school year up in maine um and Basically, what ended up happening was as things got progressively more serious and other NESCAC schools started canceling, the administration held out, obviously, um, based on the quote-unquote Barstool NESCAC championship for coronavirus closing, right? Um, (laughs) But, but like, the reason that it held out the longest was because we didn't have a break when other schools had a break, so we didn't have to worry about people traveling and then coming back. Yeah. For that reason, nobody actually thought we were going to 
get sent home until it got so serious that you couldn't really imagine the school doing anything else and still maintaining like a facade of responsibility. So like, yeah, it, that was, that's really interesting to hear that. Like you guys didn't talk about it at all. And, and, in that type of way from like teacher, from, from, from professor, from professor to student, because mainly just because I happened to be in a class this, this past semester with our president at Wesleyan Pres, uh, Michael Roth, and then just other classes where it was more of a seminar discussions type that as we got into the last week of February and into March, kind of everyone knew what was going on. Obviously the, the situation was getting way worse abroad and, it was starting to hit like Seattle was hit and you could see like New Rochelle and New York city where we're both from was the epicenter was, was like the first epicenter. And our professors were telling us, you know, Hey, not just like the wash your hands stuff, but like we might delay opening after spring break and prepare for this. And Hey, like even some professors were, were talking about like, Hey, you know, we're getting, instructions and going to meetings about like how to prepare and make our classes online. And that's when it started hit, hitting me. And I, I think some of my classmates, as much as we were in denial about having our senior spring or last semester in college cut short that like something extraordinary was happening. But like, where were you when, when you first heard the news that I think Amherst closed first, like where, like where were you when, when you first saw that, like, oh my God, schools are actually closing that aren't that far away from me. They're, they're in my own you know, school conference and in my region of yeah. the country. Well, the next guys were the first schools to close in the country. I think, I'm, well, probably schools in Washington State closer, but whatever, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, I actually remember pretty vividly two different instances where I found out two different pieces of like really shocking news. I was... The first time in my common room. Oh, I know exactly where I was. So I was playing 2K in my common room because um, I just finished working on my thesis. And um, I, I just gotten back from a couple of community organizations I was working with in Lewiston on a project. Um, community, community organizations for immigrants. I just gotten back from working with them, right? And I had just gotten home and I was like, trying to wind down yeah exactly 2k yep yeah as one does and my roommates were like flowing in and out of the room because it was around dinner time so they were coming in and out and a huge pack of guys comes into our common room after we came back from dinner and almost at that moment i paused my game and i looked at the push notifications on my phone and that i just saw that rudy gobert had gotten diagnosed yeah and that the thunder jazz game was being canceled and basically we all sat in that common room as the dominoes fell kind of like not necessarily dissecting but like trying to process what was happening so the rigo bear thing happened and then it was either that night or um the following night that like the first night mezcac school closed and then from there it was like a huge slew of dominoes right um yeah how how did you find out that that Bates had had closed? Was it through email? Was it through a text? Because at, for for us at Wesleyan, we knew it was coming, so we were all texting about it, like you know, 
people were claiming to have like the sources inside saying like the email's coming at two o'clock or three o'clock and here's what it's gonna say. But like we we all knew what was coming, but when we got that email from you know, I have like the Gmail notifications on my phone. So so I happened to to see it before the before the text came in and it was from President Roth and Japan said like update and like you just knew what it was gonna say. N- nobody had any idea what what was coming. Um at least up until the day before, because obviously there are kids and trustees on campus, and yeah. the word kind of slipped out through that channel um, the night before the email. But basically, up until up until the NESCAC spring season got canceled, nobody yep. really raised an eyebrow. I remember I was having lunch with one of my friends that I was running the project with. Shout out Maddie Murphy. Um, I was having lunch with Maddie Murphy in Portland um, after we had just interviewed somebody for this project that we were working on uh, collaboratively. And we got the, I, I guess it was a group text. One of our group texts blew up saying that the spring season is canceled. And then you go on Instagram and as one does, and you see all these spring athletes posting farewells to their teammates or their athletic careers. And your heart kind of sinks to your stomach. And I kind of just remember driving back to Bates from Portland, which is like 40 minutes and neither yeah. of us said a word. We, we were kind of just like, dazed because it it was just so much sadness and disappointment to process at one point and this is when we thought we were going to be able to stay on campus right like there was just so much disappointment from students not being able to finish out their athletic careers and literally within 48 hours we were all just gone um yeah that was the, the that was the most shocking part of the email that that we received at least which was like it was not just that the school is closed and we're going online and all that stuff. But it was like, oh, and then in the next bullet point, it was like, you have until this date one week from now to come back to campus and clear out your room. I think the most difficult part is kind of just how quickly everything happened. And I'm sure this isn't unique to us, um, being that everyone's worlds kind of got flipped on their head very quickly. But basically, like like you said, you literally got an email and you were like, in the next three days, you have to move all of your belongings. It was... It was shocking to, to to see that just in terms of how quickly because I think we're all expecting the traditional senior spring where it's a slow build up towards the end where you get more ready and ready to actually say goodbye to the school and, and to really move on. It was like done. Like, yes, you have to finish classes, but it's kind of like this oh, yeah. is goodbye right now. And it was also that for so many people – not just with the concerns about how to get back to campus and all this stuff, because that was all legitimate concerns, but it's when when that was happening, post-graduation stuff immediately shifted to, like, you know, you're not going to East Asia anymore, and, and that's a small thing, but it's like people that, that we know had their job offers or internship offers oh revoked so, very, yeah. very, very quickly. The the job was claimed at $33 million over the last seven weeks, so just – just as a graduating student, it's you know it's shocking and a little scary when you're seeing these these numbers come out and you're seeing everything happen. Just like, am I going to be able to to get a job post graduation? Yeah, and I want your answer to that as well. Uh, I would say it's internal pandemonium being just the comparison between what my life was about two months ago and what it is now, let alone what it's going to be in three, but in three months is such a 
grossly chaotic combination of like transitions all yeah. in like different areas of like my life and i'm not saying like woe is me obviously because like like i said many other more difficult things are happening in the world but like it's still like a lot to process at once and for I sure part of, yeah part of what makes it so difficult is having to juggle a few different types of issues at the same time while also trying to be a normal human being like dealing with a complete transition in the people you spend most of your time around and or what may be available to you both to do as an occupation but also to like spend your spare time on next year given that what parts of the world are open are going to be completely changed from what they were before the pandemic true very true yeah and also just like I, I guess what, how you identify just as a human being. Cause like when I describe myself to everyone, I talk about my majors and my college and my college experience and what I want out of that and having things come to an end so abruptly kind of means you have to come up with solutions or you need to reshape this narrative in your head about yourself abruptly. And it's also just, that it's, it, it's also that you're talking about, you know, the experiences that we had two more months to kind of, keep that experience and maybe change the experience and kind of wrap a bow on it. And all of a sudden it was, it was over without kind of our way of ending it the way that we exactly wanted it to. And, and I'll bring it to, you know, the, you know, you you mentioned that, you know, we all live with, or we both live with our group of friends at school, but that's very different than coming home and living with your family in and not that, you know, not living and that living with your family isn't great and has positives, but it's yeah, that, sure, but, but it's that with the nature of the pandemic, it's that it's the only people we are seeing now, you know, at school, if, if you were frustrated with a roommate or something, you could always, you know, there was a lot more social interactions you could have in person, face to face and doing things. Now it's like, we're kind of seeing the same people over and over and over again. And, you know, I don't know how you guys did it because, you know, just you live in an apartment in Manhattan, New York City, great, great apartment, but you know, it's four people in a confined space. Just like, what was that like the first couple days where, you know, you're all home? There's a reason that we are not in that apartment anymore. And luckily we were, for whatever reason, able to find a place to stay for the next few months, but undisclosed rural location, undisclosed location on the Eastern seaboard. But basically, uh, yeah, that was pandemonium. Um, what became more clear to me than ever is basically New York City apartments aren't meant for four people to live in. They're meant for four people to like sleep come in. in and out of yeah. throughout the course of a day. And like my apartment isn't like particularly small for a New York City apartment. No, it's a either, great but apartment. It was, but it was still so cramped because there's there are no enclosed spaces. There there and I, I just feel like it not only are there no enclosed spaces, but especially because of how densely packed New York was um, in tandem with the fact that if you want to stay healthy, you have to stay away from other people. There yeah. was no external space to seek refuge in. Like usually when I'm home for a break or in high school, I could get my own space by going to a coffee shop and doing some work or taking a walk to the East river and like doing whatever. Right. But when you're all trapped in that enclosed space, you have to share the exact same thing. And I guess that's what a lot of people do on a daily basis. Like people that like 
grow up in smaller spaces. I guess that's not like a novel problem, but but it's uh, but uh, I, but it's a challenge when when as you're saying the the part about the pandemic is that you can't leave. You can't you know you're gonna go press the elevator button. Your first thought now for the first time ever is how many other people have touched this this button. Well, well, it's one thing like living in a small enclosed space also because me and my dad and my sister all had work to do and there was one closing door in the whole apartment so like you're constantly fighting through like internet bandwidth and like space to do things but also as you know my mom is the germaphobe of all germaphobes um and that she has her things that she wants to be like I, I don't know if neurotic is the word, but, like, very careful about And I think that's all good because, like, that type of diligence has brought so many amazing things to my life. But when it comes to a pandemic, you will never run out of things to freak out about, right? That's so, like, true. like, you can draw the line somewhere. So you've arrived in this rural, undisclosed location in a in a northern state from New York City is what mm-hmm. we'll say. And just now that you're out in – you know, n- not the wilderness, but the rural time, just like, how are you spending <laughs> your days? Like, are you able to to get outside and just, you know, walk around without worrying about other people? Are you still, do you still feel like you have to be inside a lot of the time? Wait, before I answer that, can I ask you what, what your life has been like in your townhouse and or how you're feeling about this huge transition? Because like, uh, you, you definitely discuss the transition itself but you haven't discussed your transition like how are you feeling about all this yeah i i mean it's definitely upsetting and it's definitely anxiety provoking just about just the huge unknown about you know as you mentioned there's a lot of other things going on so when you're reading all these bad news it it hurts you a little bit mentally just with your stigma with which is what you're thinking about all this stuff right just reading all of this negative news but it's also you are contemplating like, do I want to go do this job or do I want to go do something that may help more in the short term, but may not be a, you know, a viable career option. Then, then it's also just the, the day-to-day experience of just like living at home. It's been great, but it's also had its downsides, but I'm in a really lucky, unique position that, that we have enough space in my house where it when when we all need to just like, uh, be by ourselves for a little bit and, and, and get our work done or just watch TV. We're able to do that. And, and mainly just our neighborhood in Brooklyn is quiet enough that we can go outside and, and walk around on the residential streets and not really, and not really see anyone. Yeah. So, so you can go for a short walk for 20 minutes. As, I mean, like as long as you don't go out like at four o'clock, right when the school day's over and everyone's taking their kids outside, like if you go out in the morning, it's pretty fine. You know, you, you wear your mask and everything, but that's it's with if, if we didn't if, if I wasn't in this position, it would definitely be very, very different. But we'll see how you know we, we're kind of still taking it day by day and week by week. How when if you go out for a walk, how many people do you see? And, and is it weird seeing another person? Because it's definitely weird now, like you see someone walking their dog, they may have a mask on or not, but you're kind of like, do I even really want to walk by this person from a far distance or? You know, a lot of times I just cross the street and people do the same thing to me. You know, it's people are very hesitant in the city to be, to get too close to another person. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I wouldn't call it like heart palpitating, but like it, it's, and stressful is kind of understating it, but it, it's just freaky. You know, like, yeah. I, I just feel like, I, I feel like nobody's spared by 
I mean, like, did you, I, I know you're writing your, your thesis this, this spring, but like, did you have any Zoom or online classes or what did you hear from your friends about that experience? Because I'll, I'll be very honest, like, it's a completely different experience going to college online, primarily just because all the classes we were taking weren't designed this way. But it's very difficult having class discussions on Zoom because you don't know who's talking. You don't want to interrupt someone. You don't know if they're frozen or you're frozen. You, you miss like the body cues, like the body language cues of when someone's going to talk, when they're not going to talk, of just those natural conversation that you just don't get on Zoom. So I found it very difficult and challenging in, in a lot of ways. I, I think difficult and challenging to say the least. I, I, I was lucky enough that I was close to the end of the semester, but also most of my classes were projects um, or project-based. So there wasn't much lecturing or discussion left. It was just like working on things at my own time. Mm-hmm. But the class that I, but, uh, but for that reason, like I was able to contrast it in the lecture class that I had just didn't work. And it wasn't because the professor didn't do a really good job of like structuring it. Like he did as well as he could have. The forum just isn't meant for communicating about really like complex or yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess complex issues. Like it's just not built for that. See, see, I found my, the, my lecture classes a lot easier to do over Zoom because now you missed out on, on like some, some of the Q&A in it. It might have been the one lecture I was in this, this semester or those two lectures were just a little bit of bigger classes. But, you know, those classes you would do PowerPoints anyway and the professor would talk about the PowerPoints and they would just do that on Zoom and they would share their screen and they would talk about the PowerPoints. It was harder to pay attention because you know, you're at home, you have a lot more things going on around you, you have your computer to potentially dis- distract you. But I found it was that my seminar classes were, were more hurt by it than, than the lectures. But uh, yeah, it would, it'll definitely be interesting to see what, what happens this summer because you know, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the fall, but if they have to, if classes have to be online, how the, you know are they going to be structured very differently and try to tailor t- more to just the online experience but you know it's we're, our, most of our arguments have in, in our house have been over as you mentioned just the wi-fi and the bandwidth because apparently apparently zoom takes up a lot of wi-fi power it really does that it's you know m- most of our texts about like i'm I can't get on the Wi-Fi. Are you on the Wi-Fi? Like, you don't need the Wi-Fi. I'm in class. Like, that's where most of our arguments have been. And, you know, that's a very first world issue. But, but like, but like, what has been the funniest or the best argument uh, looking back between either you and your sister, who's a college freshman, or, uh, you know, your dad and your mom? Just, Just like, what are some of the funny things that have happened in your household? So... It's a lot of confusion because my sister is in this space in her life where she's really reading a lot about Buddhism. And Buddhism, I think, is fascinating and really interesting. But she's really big on preaching a lot of the central tenets of Buddhism to both me and my dad. Like, basically, she wants to educate us all the time. And I'm just confused. I, I just don't understand a lot of how she maintains her sanity. Like she meditates for hours a day and I just don't understand. Uh, Apparently meditating is like 
amazingly clarifying and cleansing and a really awesome habit to get into. I just can't see how she enjoys it enough to do it for hours a day. And basically a lot of the arguments in this house come from debating the merits of like spirituality and like material uh, materialism. She's, she's like adamant that people have like a soul and I'm like, that may be true, but how could you ever know that? And she's just like, there's things that Western science can't account for. And I, 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 I that, that's like an existential, um, argument but that as you know my family kind of operates on that wavelength and that's basically been the conversation of the moment like in the kitchen while we're cooking i'm like so just like very very you know casual relaxed dinner conversations (laughs) no they're not relaxed (laughs) they're really intense and they're uh passionate so basically i'm guessing that that you very much enjoy facetime and zooming with people just to talk about anything else but like what are some but just like what are some things you're doing outside of school when when you were still doing your classes to to pass the time like i've been reading a lot like i'm reading my seventh book since the start of spring break i'm, I'm reading range right now by david epstein really enjoying it i'm watching tv shows you know re-watching parks and rec watching top chef but like I'm always fascinated by because there's the people who get into those Netflix binges. You know, our buddy James, you know, he watched Tiger King in those two days. He was all over it, right? And there's plenty, and there's plenty of people like that. And then, and then there's some people, you know, who uh, like me or who are rewatching old shows. People are just rewatching shows they may have missed just while they were on, like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or whatever, uh, Game of Thrones. But like, what are some of the things you're doing to just pass the time and I guess to I've been rotating between four things um number one first and foremost and most importantly is I have been in contact with um one of our family friends who runs a nonprofit. and basically long story short is I'm just offering my time to help him out with whatever he needs um and I'm not obviously he only has like so much energy to like delegate to me um but whenever he calls um, there for him and I'm just trying to help him out because he's out there helping his students try try to meet the basic needs in life and that is I think a nice way to like do something that isn't just sitting here and talking about how terrible everything in the world is right so that's number one first and foremost and then number two is focusing on the recovery so I can really get back into my into like a rigid routine um, or not necessarily rigid, but like a, a routine and the recovery is broken up into three things. It's TV, Nintendo switch and reading, um, reading more than switch and switch more than TV. Um, so I'm reading a book called the big test right now by Nicholas Lamont, um, which is about how the SAT has created, has helped foster this myth of a meritocracy in America um, and what it means for how we do not only higher education admission, admissions, but what higher education's role is in facilitating the distribution of resources in America. So how, how higher education helps decide who has the skills to that allow them to make money or have influence moving forward, right? And that's been really fascinating. I've been playing a lot of 2K um, and a lot of Zelda. Um, both, I think, outstanding games, which may be a hot take on the two kicks. I know it's gotten a lot of flack this year, but I well, think you, you, you also, you know, you know, we have had our battles at the 
in NBA 2K throughout the years. Uh, just great, fun, competitive battles. Uh, we won't say who's has the substantially better so, record against uh, the the other person, <laughs> but uh, what? But 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 like, so you're playing those games. Are you playing just by yourself against the computer? Are you playing online? So I, I, I play against the computer, but I never play any sort of video game without a podcast at the same time. Like, um, because I feel like if you're doing something mindless, it's nice. You don't always have to be simulated every moment of your life, obviously. But I think it's nice to have something going on in the background to like maybe pick up a couple things from while you're turning your brain off, right? So against the computer on in both games. Um, with a huge rotation of podcasts in the background. As of late, I've been trying trying to work through Gladwell's podcast, which I really like. Um, and obviously the double double whenever something comes out, that seems I appreciate it. Like, yeah, well, dude, of course. Um, <laughs> but like, um, but 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 that's interesting because because I do the same thing. But you know, I I try to get through like the Michael Lewis new podcast. The that's another one. Ryan, yeah. Ryan Russillo, you know, when I'm doing like the video games, when, when I'm going for a walk, I try to listen to, to, to the more serious stuff that like the stuff that I'm truly trying to pay attention in. <laughs> but like when I'm driving or when I'm playing video games and it's, you know, like the passive listening, I love the, the rewatchables on, on the uh, Ryan Russillo's podcast, you know, anything that that's really going to make me laugh uh, as the rewatchables podcast really do. You know, I think that that's where we should leave for here. You know, you're, Dude, on such a positive moment and memory in this, you know, troubling, troubling time. Matt, thank you so much. Th- this was great. Uh, we'll have to check back in in a, in a couple months and see how things are going in the quarantine editions of, you know, college seniors dealing with uh, dealing with all this. Yeah, dealing with 2020. Yeah, of course. All right, Matt. Appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much appreciated. And you can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back on Friday. Till then, take care and make it a great day.